This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. Ellen Levita with you. Today, we find out how data is transforming sport as we know it. We're in an age, especially in sports science at the moment, where it's sort of the data tsunami. We can collect numbers and metrics on every single thing. The good thing about sport is that it has that unpredictability and that passion, and I don't think we should ever go away from that. And how a certain type of dementia affects empathy. But first on the show, does a woman perform better in sporting competitions if she has her period? Well, the answer is nobody knows because nobody has ever tested it. An editorial published this week in the British Journal of Sports Medicine has criticised the lack of studies on females in the sport and exercise field. The authors say that women have been left out of studies because of the hormonal variations in their menstrual cycle – And it's not just sport and exercise studies either. It's across the whole health spectrum. Georgie Brimbles is a PhD student from the University College of London and one of the authors of the study. So I think the key thing is that there's variations in hormones through the menstrual cycle. Um, So estrogen and progesterone have like a cyclical pattern um, that varies through the 28 to 35 day cycle of your average female. And the problem is that we simply don't understand that each phase, what exactly is going on, um, because research just hasn't been done. And the key reason for that is because effectively you need females to come in every single day um, and track their response to many different things. Um, Now that adds costs and time. Um, And we're always wanting to forge forward with research. And this would be taking like a massive backward step. So, Either females are not included or they're only tested in their early follicular phase where their hormone levels are really low and most similar to that of a man, or um, they're given the oral contraceptive, so effectively everything's just the same. But (laughs) women have to compete at all phases of their menstrual cycle and and live at all phases of their menstrual cycle, so effectively we're missing massive snapshots of time. Is there research on women's menstrual cycles or just the menstrual cycle, full stop? Very limited. Um, I mean, in away from the exercise field, like, yes, there is in part, like, we know how the hormones cycle, for example, but we don't know the repercussions of that. Like, I, I was at a conference last week and they were talking about females in the heart, like how females' hearts are different to male hearts. But... There's sort of a generally accepted. Like I put my hand up and I said, "Okay, but hang on. What about certain phases of their menstrual cycle?" And they said, "Yeah, well, we don't think there'll be a change, but we don't really know." And then there's um, a very well-known female researcher who jumped up and said, "Hang on a minute. Like we don't know that." Does, does <laughs> so, that does that surprise you that you know we're on our way to curing cancer, but we still don't know how women's menstrual cycles yeah, work? Exactly. Like I mean. 
it, it is like a fundamental thing of life. Like, I, I mean, if um, in my article I alluded to this um, fact that 80% of drugs withdrawn from the market are due to unacceptable side effects on women. Now, um, Alison McGregor, who's a co-author on the paper, is really trying to forge forward in um, female research, which is brilliant. And I think in the clinical world, they're doing a better job and I mean it's likely that they are well it's, it's inevitable that they'd be more ahead of the sports science or sports medicine field um, but still they're struggling like it, it's really hard to make up for that historical lack of studies um, and as I said like yeah you always want to push forward and not add, on, add in um, extra costs and doing research in females I guess is gonna do that. <laughs> So discrimination aside, because yeah. um, a, a woman's menstrual cycle is a variable you can't control and when you're doing research, yeah. you obviously want to control all the variables. Do you yeah. think we will see an increase in women's research or is it is it just too hard? Um, no, I think I definitely think we can do. Um, I mean, I was having a long discussion with my supervisor about this last night and like I'm I'm definitely as soon as I finish my PhD, like that is my key area. <laughs> and I mean hoping that this like editorial will start encouraging people to start bridging this gap. Like I think we've got to appreciate that we're gonna have to take some steps back in females in a way. We can't just keep finding out new things about the general exercising population. We need to go and look specifically at females. And now it sounds like I'm discriminating but yeah, we have to we have to gain this like like for example, does their metabolism vary through the menstrual cycle? Like could that be a reason for these performance um detriments which are noted by many females? Um and that's like a massive, massive part. I mean, it's the, it's the Olympics coming up. I'm, I'd love to find out the number of females on on the day of competition actually feel that their menstrual cycle is holding them back. Is is there research looking at that? I really don't think so. I'm not. I, I'm not that I found. I mean, in my um, first study, I looked at the number of females who solely said that their menstrual cycle affected their performance and it was at 41% like that's that's a hell of a lot and that includes elite athletes as well so effectively on the, on the start line of every race like <laughs> two in every five are saying that their menstrual cycle is preventing them from performing at their best and it could be that the others are taking the oral contraceptive so just to control it so there's, a, there's a fundamental issue which I just don't think it's kind of, because it's, it's, it's this taboo subject and no one wants to talk about it, but actually it needs to be addressed. And in saying that, do we know what effect the oral contraceptive has on performance compared to women who aren't on the oral contra- contraceptive? Exactly. No. And that's my supervisor's biggest um, kind of bugbear. He's always saying, well, we don't know. Like, it could be, I, I mean, it's assumed that it's fine and like I mean there've obviously been trials done on it but we don't we don't know how it affects your performance because the cyclical um variation in hormones may may actually be good it might be good for bone health and I wouldn't be surprised if it is like it happens for a reason but when you're taking your contraceptive you take that away you mentioned we're not sure for example how the menstrual cycle affects metabolism is there anything else in the sport and exercise field that's really missing the menstrual cycle so much like immune status, um, 
oxidative stress levels. Um, injury, so injury risk is said to vary through the menstrual cycle. Um, like strength varies through the menstrual cycle. It, this is all hypothesized. So this is the this is the problem. Like I've drawn, I've got this image of um, how the hormones vary, but we don't actually know if any of this is real because it's all one study says this, one study says that because there's just not enough out there. Um, yeah, like there's a blood pressure even. Um, there's a whole host of things which are said to be variable potentially. Georgie Brimbles, PhD student from the University College of London, speaking there about the need for more women to be included in research studies. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Well, from no research to too much research. Sports scientists have been using data to track the training and skills development of players for many years now. And advances in technology mean even more data can be collected to improve performance. But with so much data, it isn't always easy to turn numbers into action. Nina Kopel went along to a sports science panel discussion at the University of Technology, Sydney, to determine how all of this information is being used and to ask the question, has sports science gone too far? When you think about sports, say the NRL or AFL, you think about the players on the field who've trained long and hard to be there. They physically and mentally pushed themselves to their limit. But how often do we stop to think about the science behind the sport? Michael Rennie is a strength and conditioning coach with the Sydney Swans. He's also a PhD candidate at UTS, researching the demands of running in AFL. To do so, he's looking at millions of cells of information. But at the end of the day, he says data analysis in sport comes down to one main thing. You're really trying to figure out the reasons why you win and why you lose. I think the hardest part is trying to change the way you do things in order for people to implement the changes on the field. And sport's such a dynamic environment. Things are always changing. The, the competition, the weather, the, the recovery that you've had, the mood that you've had, your, your home life can affect it. So I think trying to get people to put in the changes that you that you find out in your research, that's the hardest part, and I think that's the art of coaching. That's the biggest challenge in sports science, I think. And how do you navigate that psychological tension in people's minds when you you know you want to emphasise or or look at their physical ability, but how do you then first take a step back and acknowledge that psychological health is important as well? I think before we're before we're sports scientists or before we're coaches, we we sort of work on these personal relationships more than anything, and that. I think in any good good working environment, everyone has good relationships and the managers and the leaders, they drive the interpersonal stuff. Most of the information that we get as far as our player development, our recovery and stuff goes is, is by talking to the players. We ask a lot of questions about their health, about their wellness, about their recovery, about which muscles are sore. So the value of the information comes directly from them and that information is incredibly more valid it's incredibly more reliable when you're trusting similar to when you go to the doctor i guess the the quality of the healthcare they provide you is really dependent on the information that you give them and for what end result what what is the ideal player that you're trying to establish the thing that you're trying to achieve as far as team performance goes is team cohesiveness 
and that comes from first of all choosing the right players in your team that have the physical qualities the technical qualities that you want and then also really smart players that can implement the tactics that you that the coach wants to employ and the tactics are always going to change depending on the opposition the weather that that has a big impact in AFL first and foremost you need to try to develop a team that works well as a team and does that also come back to the creativity where you have to look at the different players and the different abilities and skills and then find a way of applying that in an innovative way yeah definitely and we've got 22 players in an AFL team, 18 players on the field at one time. Trying to get them to all execute the same tactics at the same time is, is very, very difficult. So first and foremost, I think you need to have a good coach that can teach the players about the tactics, how they think the game should be played, and then it's up to the players on game day to, to execute it. For coaches and players, it's easy to understand how this type of data about performance and health could play into their training plans. But there's another way data is changing the game. Matt Jefferies is a strength and conditioning coach and rehabilitation coordinator for the NRL referees. And he's also a UTS PhD candidate looking at referee performance and decisions. But with video footage playing more of a role in referee decisions and data becoming more and more accessible, I wanted to know if the next step would be replacing referees with robots. I definitely hope not. If sporting decisions were just black and white, the whole entertainment concept would go. And that's sort of why we're pushed to give it more context. If it were so black and white, the whole spectacle would just go out the window. The referees themselves will evaluate their own performance and they're scored metrically on their decision making. But I think the whole idea of the AI referee is a little bit scary. What is that entertainment value? What's the enjoyment that comes from having a referee on the field, interacting with players and having that experience? When you get to this level, basically the sport is just entertainment. We know that the money comes from media deals, it's from online views, it's from subscriptions. So I don't think many of the referees are deluded in thinking that they're the centre of attention for the game. We know that it's an entertainment value. In saying that, we're not out there to sort of get the most on-edge seat in the end. I remember an interview from one of the referees who actually said that he doesn't care about the outcome of the game, he's just out there to referee as best as he can. Could you argue then that sports science has gone too far or could go too far? Are we at risk of losing the fun? Absolutely, absolutely. We're in an age, especially in sports science at the moment, where it's sort of the data tsunami. We can collect numbers and metrics on every single thing. The good thing about sport is that has that unpredictability and that passion, and I don't think we should ever go away from that. So, yes, I think we can push it too far. Something that struck me today that I'd never thought of is the fact that refs are sports people. They are incredibly fit. They go through training. Do you think that people realise that? Not at all. Uh, Often when I tell people that I'm involved with the high-performance department of referees, one, like you said, they don't even know that they train. They don't know how hard and how physically they train. So up to three sort of three to four physical sessions a week. But then their own coaching and evaluations and mental skills training that they do as well. I think at the junior levels, uh, people think the referees just turn up with a whistle, which is OK. But again, even at that level, they're doing some training throughout the week. So you've got to realise that these guys are training. They are performing a difficult task out there. They're going to make mistakes. So there has to be a level of sympathy out there for them and a bit of empathy for what they do and the pressure that they're on. There's not many other jobs in the world where your decisions are scrutinised so heavily to the point that you get home from a day's work and there's up to 100 people on social media saying all sorts of things that they want to do to you because your team lost by two to three points. 
them and politicians. Um, <laughs> uh, do people still want to be referees despite all of that? You, you sort of would wonder why you would want to be a referee, but what we're doing now is sort of restructuring the, the referee system so that there's a national structure and that we do have sort of junior tiers and junior academies. And we do still, still see people coming through and you, you must wonder why at the top level because of the scrutiny they get, but there's still that love for the game at the junior levels and people that just want to be involved in the game. So again, fostering that at the junior levels uh, to increase retention rates is where we've got to go and a lot of more effort has got to come from the game to foster that, to get those referees coming through the ranks and the support system that's around it so that if they are abused by a parent from the sideline, that they know there's systems in place that we can help them there to promote them and not just steer them away from the game. So from a data collection perspective and from a training perspective, where are we heading if there is that risk of going too scientific, too data heavy? Again, there's a lot of gut feel in it. So we can provide reports and numbers to the coaches and the referee boss. In the end, he makes a decision on who goes where. And it's the same with the referees. We can give them data around anything. And the interesting thing about the referees is they're that intelligent that they want to learn. They want to know the statistics behind it. But in saying that, they also know that the statistics that we give them really isn't going to go out there with them when they cross, cross that white line. I'm not going to be able to go out there and help them make better decisions on the field. And no two games are ever going to be the same. So it's about giving them the tools during the week that they can use and then for them doing what they do best, which is being the best referees in the world. Nina Copel speaking there with Matthew Jeffries, PhD candidate in the Faculty of Health at UTS. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, on demand at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. Dementia is often associated with memory loss, but did you know it can also be associated with a loss of empathy? For those under the age of 65, the most common form of dementia is what's known as frontotemporal dementia. This type of dementia causes damage to the frontal and or temporal lobes of the brain, which control behaviour and personality. As a result, people with this type of dementia may act differently. They may start shoplifting or inappropriately commenting on someone's appearance. And it's all because of a lack of empathy. New research has attempted to explain why empathy loss is associated with this type of dementia. Dr Marianne Irish, cognitive neuroscientist at Neuroscience Research Australia, has more. Yeah, so empathy is one of these really interesting constructs that we all take for granted in our daily lives and yet it provides the foundation for all of our social interactions. And so research points to the fact that there are different types of empathy. So there's a cognitive type, which is, we could understand it as being the thinking type of empathy. So we understand and appreciate the um, experiences and sort of emotional experience of other people. But there's also what's known as the affective type, and this is the emotional type of empathy. And this allows us to really share the emotional experience of other people. So on one hand, we can understand what people are going through via the cognitive type, but the affective type lets us really empathize and share the emotional experience of other people. And how is this affected with people who have dementia? 
So there are um, a certain group of dementia syndromes, so a subtype of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. And what we see in um, subtypes of this form of dementia is really a loss of what we call social cognition. So these patients will present with changes in personality and changes in the way that they interact with others. So they lose the capacity to interact on the social and emotional sort of plane. They're not able to empathize. They're not able to take the perspective of other people. Um, they're not even able to consider how their actions and their words might affect other people. So we see really that there's this social domain is highly compromised and it can make it extremely difficult for caregivers to relate to these individuals and to try and care for them and adapt to their changing needs. Frontal temporal dementia, that's something I've never heard of. I kind of just thought that there was a blanket term for dementia. Yeah, so this is a common um, misperception about dementia. So really when we're talking about dementia, it's an umbrella term that refers to many different forms of neurodegenerative diseases. And so frontotemporal dementia is just a subtype of dementia and it's one of the younger onset dementias and by younger onset we mean that it strikes individuals typically under the age of 65 years old so it occurs much earlier in life and you can imagine that that causes a lot of um, challenges that aren't necessarily present in the later onset dementias. Do we know what causes this particular type of dementia? Um, So because there are a number of different subtypes again within this rubric of frontotemporal dementia and there have been some links with certain mutations genetic mutations and there are certain different risk factors but as with most of the dementia conundrum it's still unclear how these different genetic factors and also environmental factors interact to cause you know the emergence of dementia but certainly there are a lot of groups worldwide now chipping away at trying to understand the genetic risks and also how these symptoms then come to manifest. When someone is diagnosed with dementia do we know what type of dementia that they're going to get? So this is one of the real clinical challenges that we face at the moment, that certain dementia presentations will follow a rather sort of typical route and we'll be able to diagnose a classic, you know, memory profile is often indicative of someone who might have Alzheimer's disease. Um, Other times the diagnosis is not so clear. And so within the clinic, it's up to us to use an array of different, what we call cognitive tests, looking at different domains of thinking, attention, language, memory, to try and work out, does this individual have the classic features of this type of dementia? And often what we resort to is also using um, neuroimaging. And this allows us to look then at the level of the brain and its structure and volume of different structures to see where is the pathology targeting and what regions have started to shrink. And often there are characteristic profiles of brain shrinkage, so what we call atrophy, And they can also be a clue as to what type of dementia the individual has. Your recent research has looked at how this frontal temporal dementia affects empathy. Is that right? Yes. So we were interested to look to see what are the neural substrates. So what are the brain regions that seem particularly vulnerable in this patient group or this population and so what we did was we looked within frontotemporal dementia and we also used the group of Alzheimer's patients as what we call a disease control because often we don't see the same social cognitive deficits in Alzheimer's disease 
And we had caregivers rate the individuals across an array of different forms of empathy. So how the individual relates to others, whether they're able to share in the emotional experience of others and understand the different perspectives and feelings that other people have. And we were able to then look at the cognitive aspect of empathy and the effective aspect of empathy. And we found some very interesting differences. So we found that both of our dementia groups, so the Alzheimer's and the frontotemporal dementia patients, showed compromised cognitive empathy. So they seemed to both have difficulties in just appreciating the emotional perspectives of others. But we found that effective empathy, so being able to share in the emotional experience of others, was only compromised in the frontotemporal dementia group. And when we controlled for just overall disease severity, we found that this in turn explained those deficits in the Alzheimer's patients group. So it was more a cognitive problem in just understanding rather than an emotional perceptual problem per se. But in the frontotemporal dementia group, the deficits remained. So really what we're finding is that there's this gross inability to actually take the perspectives of others and to share in the emotional experience of others in this frontotemporal dementia group. And then when we used our neuroimaging analysis to look on the level of the brain, we found that atrophy and brain shrinkage in a key region of the social brain is the driving force behind these changes. Going back to what happens when people are first diagnosed with dementia, is this sort of research going to be able to help carers understand the behaviour that that person is going to start exhibiting? I think that's a really important point and we certainly need to start um, educating our caregivers more about the types of changes that are potentially lying on the horizon for them. So we found in a separate study actually looking at empathy in different other subtypes of dementia that one of the key drivers of caregiver burden and caregiver distress was the emergence of some of these behavioural and social changes that they hadn't actually anticipated. So I think some knowledge in this domain is actually key and then the caregivers can start to anticipate and respond you know preemptively perhaps rather than reacting to you know embarrassing or awkward circumstances so uh, education I think is key. Because it can't be easy seeing someone that you love start exhibiting behaviors that were otherwise completely out of their normal personality. Absolutely and uh, to make that issue even worse is the fact that our patients show a lack of insight into their actions so they're unaware um, of what they're actually doing and they're unaware and unable to actually appreciate how these actions can impact on other people and another factor to consider is that this is younger onset dementia. So oftentimes these individuals will still have relatively young families, they're in the workforce, they're physically able and fit. And so it can be very challenging to, you know, try and deal with these changes at a time in your life when you weren't really anticipating having to deal with dementia. So it's fraught with many different um, challenges and difficulties and it can be a very distressing time for the family. Dr. Murianne Irish, cognitive neuroscientist at Neuroscience Research Australia, ending that story. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You can also tweet us at 2ser. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. 
I'm Ellen Lee Beta. See you next week for more.